Here's something interesting, the fascinating past and present of Silicon Valley and an industry that has made life both better and worse at the same time. Hi there, I'm Chris Oaks. Welcome to the Here's Something Interesting podcast, where we talk to interesting people with interesting things to say about interesting subjects. And we actually have two guests that we're going to talk to today. We want to stick around because we're going to speak with Margaret O'Mara. She has a really interesting new book out called The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And it is a fascinating history of Silicon Valley as we now know it that actually goes all the way back to uh, World War II and, uh, and that era. So it is uh, really a fascinating book. We want to get to that, but before we go there, want to talk about something that was in the news this past week, and it ties into this because it is the big issue confronting Silicon Valley today, and that is that the president this past week held a social media summit that curiously did not include any of the leaders in the social media industry. Among those who were there, a variety of internet and social media-based journalists, commentators, bloggers, and podcasters with two things in common. They all support the president, and they all say they have been the victim of anti-conservative bias. So I want to talk about this social media summit. Stephen Overly is with us now. He reports on technology for Politico. And Stephen, even if you were to believe that there is an anti-conservative bias in these social media algorithms, and some believe that and some don't. But even if we were to concede that point, that there is an anti-conservative bias, if the president was serious about addressing that, it in my mind, it makes no sense not to have those social media companies represented. I mean, otherwise, it's obvious that this was just a glorified gripe session. Well, that's exactly the argument that people were making in the lead up to this summit last week, that, you know, was this really about making some sort of substantive policy change or actually getting the companies to implement some sort of change? Or was this just about airing grievances and sort of having kind of a political rally with supporters, which is how one Democratic congressman actually put it? Um, we actually learned a lot once the summit happened, including that President Trump now plans to hold a meeting with executives from those companies. So he is still planning to meet with tech companies, just not at this summit that he held last week. Now, Politico is, uh, I think a lot of people come to Politico online as an online news source. Uh, now, of course, very different than some of the ones that were part of this summit that we're talking about. How do you view this from kind of the outside looking in as a reporter for Politico uh, who reports on such things and uh, you know, as an online uh, kind of news source? How do you see this from the outside looking in? Well, I think anytime as a reporter you approach a story, you want to find hard evidence, right? Where's the data? Where's the proof that this issue really exists? And when it comes to this argument about anti-conservative bias on social media, there really is not a lot of evidence beyond anecdotal evidence, and that includes some people who have been banned, and we know that they've been banned because they're obviously no longer on these platforms. Mm -hmm. These platforms have announced that they've removed those users. But a lot of the arguments are around things like demonetizing content or making, making a user more difficult to find. Um, 
you know, from, you know, the president himself has made an argument that he's lost users or that he's not getting as much engagement as he used to. A lot of that evidence is anecdotal. It's very hard to track. And so I think those of us in the media who are covering this issue are kind of left to wonder how real is this anti-conservative bias versus is this just a way to sort of rile the conservative base Mm -hmm. and sort of get you know, get Trump supporters excited as we head into another election cycle. Well, and uh, obviously that goes back to here's why we need to get the uh, the leaders of these social media companies uh, to to discuss this. And and to that end, the president obviously isn't, isn't the only one who has taken up this cause. Congress has actually actually latched onto this as well, and they have held hearings recently on bias in social media and electronic new media and that kind of thing. Uh, again, as an entity tied to that new media, how do you, do you see that growing pushback uh, when it comes not just from the president, but also from Congress as well? Well, it certainly raises the stakes for Internet companies or or really, you know, including news publishers, any organization that has a website, especially if they host content that's generated by users or third parties. Mm -hmm. um, You you really have to be paying attention to this debate because one one evolution that's come of it are questions around a seemingly obscure law called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. But what that means for sort of the average listener is it's a law that essentially allows Internet companies not or prevents Internet companies from being held liable for content that is posted by third parties. So if you go on Facebook or you go on YouTube and you post something that is defamatory or otherwise illegal, those platforms cannot be held accountable for that currently. And that sort of law gives these companies you know, has allowed them to grow and become as big as they have without facing a lot of legal risk. Lawmakers are now talking about changing that. We've already seen one proposal from Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri to sort of impose a test on platforms. They have to prove that they're politically neutral if they want to get those protections. And so, you know, talking about changes to this law is fairly significant for folks in the Internet industry because they really view it as sacred. And that's becoming it you know that that's becoming more and more of a reality in washington right now and you talk about having to prove that you are neutral politically how difficult is that i mean you ask any attorney and uh you know proving a negative is impossible i mean you know i have a book on my desk prove that i haven't read it uh in the last 30 days proving a negative is very difficult is proving that a social media site is uh, neutral or unbiased? Is that kind of the same thing? I mean, there are a lot of questions about how that would work and what political, you know, what political neutrality even looks like, or or how do you define political speech? For example, if you just talk about an issue like abortion, or you just talk about an issue like gay marriage, is that inherently political? Mm-hmm. Or you know, if you talk about the opioid crisis, is that political? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there, you know, there's speech in this country is something that has long been so sacred. That's why we have the First Amendment. You know, we firmly believe in freedom of speech, which is an argument you heard over and over again at this summit last week at the White House. But, you know, I think it naturally you raise a question then, should the government be involved in regulating free speech? You know, and that's, you know, that's what a lot of 
people have said this is going to amount to. Yeah. The government intervening and telling us what we can say and do online when it comes to political speech. And that's not something that I think conservatives want, and it's not something that liberals really want either. It, it is a valid point uh, about how how do you even define what political speech is, because anyone who spends any time on social media these days knows that just about anything can turn political <laughs> in, you know, just like that with, with one comment, and all of a sudden we're down the rabbit hole. So uh, that is a valid point as well. And to that end, talking about regulation, I mean, should there be concern that the president might direct some type of of regulation through executive order or that Congress might implement some sort of regulation based on a perceived uh, problem uh, rather than that actual documented uh, proof that a problem exists. Well, the president said at the summit last week that he was directing his administration to look at all regulatory and legislative solutions to this perceived issue of anti-conservative bias. So that's certainly a reality that he has directed agencies to do this. Um, And as we mentioned, there are lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are looking at this very issue. including, you know, powerful folks like the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham, has talked about 230, that the law I mentioned, and possible changes to it. So, you know, this debate is happening, and, you know, the whether ultimately changes are made based on anti-conservative bias or there's some other justification for it, that will have implications for kind of the internet and sort of speech on the internet. What what about for mainstream media, the traditional media as well? Are there implications here in that respect? You talk about you know uh, infringing on you know uh, free speech rights. Are there larger implications for the free press and for independent speech and so on? There could be. I mean, the, traditionally, the press has had different regulations and laws already imposed on it that are not necessarily imposed on a platform like Facebook or YouTube. Um, that's actually one of the arguments and one of the questions people raise is, you know, is Facebook really a publisher? Is YouTube really a publisher? Mm-hmm. Or are they a completely independent, you know, third party that just hosts this content? Um you know, there are some conservatives who argue they make a lot of editorial decisions, not unlike a newspaper or a TV broadcast. You know, so, but uh, but to your point, I think when it comes to speech in the in the free press, um, we've seen the president make comments time after time about the fake news and sort of vague censorship. You know, vague threats of censorship on the mainstream news. So, you know, that's. That's certainly an argument that has come up. I don't know that we are far enough along yet to know how traditional media could be impacted by this. It, it's interesting you, you mentioned it's the uh, idea of do we hold Facebook or Twitter uh, or any of those social media platforms accountable for the things that uh, their users post? Uh, again, a, as it relates to uh, traditional media, uh, you do, do you hold the person who prints the newspapers responsible for the things that the reporters write. So it's kind of along the, the same lines. And that's the argument that's being made. Right. And I, you know, I think it always is important to point out that these are private companies. Right. The same way traditional media are private companies, Google, Facebook, Twitter, they have autonomy over 
their own platforms and they get to set the rules that they impose on their users. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this could be a real test of sort of how that dynamic continues to work if the government tries to intervene there and tell these private companies what they can and can't be doing with their business. Regulation uh, of of speech is uh, one thing, and then regulation of private industry is another area where particularly Republicans are uh, usually uh, very careful to tread, so a valid point as well. The bottom line is uh, there are an awful lot, for me anyway, I I look at this, and one of the reasons why I want to talk about this is because it it didn't seem like this social media summit got uh, a whole lot of play in the media uh, as it was happening. after, uh, after it happened last week, I, I only saw like a, a handful of stories uh, recapping it, and it just seems like this potentially could be a much bigger story, one that we really do have to pay attention to. Oh, I certainly think it will continue to be a story. You know, there, there was no definitive action out of last week's summit. Mm-hmm. You know, the president did not sign any sort of executive order or announce any sort of new hard policy proposal. What I think the last week's summit did was say that President Trump is going to make this anti-conservative bias issue a bigger deal in his administration. Um, And I think you'll hear him talk about it more often now, especially now that we're heading into the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, And, you know, if some of these proposals in Congress take off. So, you know, last week's summit, I think, was in many ways kind of a jumping off point. And now the real thing to watch is, okay, what tangible action comes of this? Yeah. Um, And we just don't know that yet. And no coincidence that it all comes up as we enter the re-election cycle, uh, I'm sure. Stephen Overly, again, uh, reports on technology for Politico. Stephen, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Now I want to bring in our second guest for today's podcast, and it really is a fascinating book. You know, anymore, it is hard to remember what life was like before social media or smartphones or the internet or even computers for that matter. All of these things that have changed the way we interact with the world around us and that have disrupted so many industries and really the economy itself come largely from one 50 square mile area of the country known as Silicon Valley. It's really kind of amazing when you think about it. Margaret O'Mara explores that region's influence and fascinating history in her new book, The Code, Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. And Margaret, you know, right up front, I, I think it's important to make this point. What we're really talking about here, this remaking of America, as you term it, it's it's the beginning of an entirely new era. I mean, a hundred years from now, historians will look back on this time the way historians today look back on the industrial age. I mean, it's that kind of change. We sometimes take it for granted, but this really cannot be understated. You're exactly right. That's why I wrote this book. You know, it's sometimes hard when you're living in it (laughs) to understand. But it's also a place that's not just the here and now. It's a place, the product of of 75 years of American history. Uh, I've been studying the tech industry for a long time, and people ask me again and again, so what's Silicon Valley's magic formula? Yeah. How'd they do it? 
And so I, I simply wrote this book to answer that question. And uh, how did it do it? And that's the that's the big. I mean, we're talking about all of this. You know, comes from largely uh, one fifty some odd square mile area of the country. So the obvious question is, why Silicon Valley? I mean, why did all of this launch there? Why not New York or Chicago or something? Yeah, or Ohio for that yeah, matter. Sure. I mean, think about the first part of the twentieth century and 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 all of the kind of incredibly you know inventive places all along, you know, in the Midwest and the Northeast, uh, the electronics industry in the middle part of the 20th century was headquartered on the East Coast, you know, the out in the Valley, it was, you know, what all they, what were they doing in the Valley in the 20s and 30s? They were growing fruit. It was known <laughs> as the world capital of prunes. I, I'm not kidding. That's when, yeah. you know, it was prune, it was the prune capital. Um, so how did it fit? The, the big the big turning point was World War II and the Cold War, and when the U.S. government, the military and other parts of the U.S. government, got into the research and development business in a big way, got into science and funding science and technology, not just only defense contracting, building things for the Cold War fight, mm -hmm. although that was part of it, but also supporting university-based research and public and private universities, building up higher education, building up K-12 education in the sciences. This is about the Cold War. This is about the space race. This is yeah. about Apollo rockets that needed tiny electronics that could take men to the moon. That is the foundation that gets this entrepreneurial flywheel going. And that was really uh, the biggest surprise to me. I mean, the, the story starts, the book starts in 1949, Palo Alto, 1949 yeah. are the first words of the book. Yeah. And I think, which is a surprise because <laughs> for the, for most of us, probably the first time we heard of Silicon Valley was late seventies, early eighties with the first video games or computers that, yeah. uh, that hit the market. Can you point to one thing? I mean, you talk about the era and everything that led to Silicon Valley uh, being what it is today. Can you point to one breakthrough that led us to where we are now, one catalyst for Silicon Valley as we know it today? Yes, it's the silicon. It's the silicon semiconductor. And that, if you to, to tell that story, you go back to 1956, 1957, when the very first startup Shockley Semiconductor, which is founded by the, one of the co-inventors of the transistor, which had been invented on the East Coast, by the way, mm -hmm. in Bell Laboratories, only a few years before, sets up shop to commercialize transistors. So the transistor is basically, you know, this is the jet fuel of everything. This is the foundational technology. So this is the microchip. This is the beginning of, yeah. you know, the digital power that powers all of the things we're using today. And that is, um, and 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 there, this is a really cool story because there's, this is an example of where government regulation. We're talking a lot about antitrust these days, right? Breaking mm -hmm. up big tech companies. Well, right. here's an example of government antitrust enforcement actually playing a role in this, the creation of this industry. Because in 1956, the Department of Justice tells AT&T is a part of this antitrust settlement because AT&T is constantly kind of having trying to. It's a regulated monopoly, right? This right. is when Ma Bell is still Ma Bell, right? And they got to follow the rules. They got to be in the telephone business, and they keep on wanting to get in the computer business. <laughs> and so basically, the Department of Justice keeps on swatting them back. And as one of they they have they uh, put down this consent decree saying that AT&T has to agree to license the transistor that they developed for free and subsequent technologies for cheap, hmm. which means that little startups that are starting up in 
places like Silicon Valley in the late 50s and 60s, or in early 60s, they can get this incredible transformative technology and they don't have to pay AT&T for it. AT&T mm. has to give it away. Yeah. So this is, and look, AT&T remains a really profitable operation. It's doing great. Like maybe it could have made more money had it had all the transistors for itself. Right. But if this is the creation. Gordon Moore, one of the co-founders of Intel, he later says, we would have not had this chip making industry silicon semiconductor industry in the valley mm-hmm. had that consent degree not happened. Yeah. So that's a kind of, you know, counterfactual it goes against this, you know, you think about antitrust and you're like, oh gosh, this is going to be really bad mm-hmm. for, for tech. But we have, you know, done right. And, and, and understanding the history, you, you, there are all these opportunities to, to think about it differently. Mm. You point out that many of the big players today who made this happened, led us to where we are now. We're inspired by this dream of making the world a better place. Uh, mm-hmm. And yet, uh, as we now know that, yes, we uh, have solved a lot of problems in many ways. We have made the world a better place, but we've also introduced a whole new set of problems. So were yeah. were they naive? Were they short-sighted? Were they delusional that there wouldn't be a downside? They were naive. I mean, I had I had some, you know, some of the people I interviewed for this book, to, you know, who were there at the creation of the commercial internet, said, "Yeah, we we were naive. We thought that if we connected everyone, we would we would, you know, would just be a force for good. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't realize people would use it to to, you know, bad ends as well." But look, you know, that techno-optimism um, is something that, that precedes the Internet. It's something that kind of enabled both the personal computer revolution and the Internet revolution, which is, you know, and it has its genesis in the, the 60s generation, this Vietnam-era generation, the Watergate, you know, the era of Vietnam and Watergate when mm-hmm. people are getting disillusioned with government. And when a sort of new baby boom generation of technologists say, hey, we've got these super powerful computers, and the government is – most of them are in government laboratories or big corporations, and big government and big business shouldn't have all this amazing computing power. What if we took the computer and instead of making it this tool of the establishment, turned it into something that was a tool of personal empowerment and communication? What if we took – what if we had – if we had all computers on every desk and they were wired together, then maybe we could fix all the problems that we see in the world, the yeah. problems that the 60s generation identified. Mm-hmm. It was this techno-optimism that has been this enduring spark that has continued to propel a whole bunch of innovation and really ambitious, risky thinking in the Valley that has generated companies. At the same time, it does have blind spots. Tech is not going to fix everything, and we're recognizing that now. But what is interesting for all of that naivete and the traditional image that we have of the computer geek uh, who made all of this happen, and a couple of which you have on the cover of the book, the Bill Gates, the Mark Zuckerbergs, mm-hmm. uh, it, we think of them as doing this all you know, with this uh, sort of, as you mentioned, techno-optimism, but this is... A business, and these may not look like traditional business executives, but they know exactly what they are doing in that respect. They are, yeah. They, I mean, this is a business that's more traditional than it lets on. Um, a great mm-hmm. example is Apple. Um, Apple is always, you know, from the very beginning, was kind of positioning itself as a countercultural company. I remember that famous Super Bowl ad in 1984, right. where you have the, introducing the Mac, where this, you know, uh, this anti-authoritarian, you know, we're going to stand up to Big Brother, mm-hmm. um, where the David, their Goliath. 
Apple was successful in part because it had really good business management and good business strategy. It had marketing. It had people who were coming from earlier generations of the electronics industry. It had a lot of adult supervision, so to speak. <laughs> it was connected into venture capital. It was yeah. uh, connected into enterprise and consumer markets in really smart ways. It was using public policy, tax breaks from the state of California to bring computers into schools as a way to enlarge its educational market. Mm-hmm. Um, all you know, and, and that doesn't mean that brilliant, iconoclastic genius of someone like Steve Jobs is not important to the story. What I try to show in this book is you have both these brilliant entrepreneurs, these people who are really uh, taking their company. You know, there's a reason that these companies break apart from the pack, and, and their leadership is, is an important part of it. Yeah. But it is also the, the technical and non-technical thousands that are behind them. It's a lot of, it takes a village, it takes a, an mm-hmm. army to create a successful company. And, uh, and that's, that's a really, really critical to recognize. And, and this is not over. I mean, this remaking of America is not something of the past. It is ongoing. So where do we go from here? Well, I think the first step is, you know, history can really be helpful. Um, and I learned that when I was back working in Washington, um, you know, why I went, why did I go get my PhD in history after working in the White House? It's kind of an odd thing to do, right? I, I realized that, that policy lawmakers needed to have a better understanding of how we got to now. And not just lawmakers, but citizens. That, that history is not just fun facts and names and dates and things you have to memorize. It's about understanding and empathizing with, uh, or a better kind of understanding the humanity of people who lived in the past and why choices were made, it also helps you understand how change is made. You know, you look back, look back at Silicon Valley's history, you can see it's been constant dynamism, constant change. Nothing is forever. Mm-hmm. There have been individuals who have made a huge difference. There also have been sort of larger circumstances that have enabled them to make a difference. I think where we go from here is we think about, okay, who do we want to be inventing the future and how do we create an amazing entrepreneurial sandbox for them? And we do that through public policy. We do that through informed citizenship, through people thinking mindfully about how they use technology, how consu- what consumers are demanding from their, you know, the tech they use and the tech they want. And also, who's in the room designing the next generation of tech products, and who is it for? Because the Valley is no longer, you know, it's selling to the world. It's it's transforming the world. So I think, you know, this is not just an American story anymore. This is a global story. It is a remarkable story. The Code, Silicon Valley, and the Remaking of America. Margaret O'Mara is the author. And do you have a website where folks can learn more about the book? I sure do. It's margaretomara.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Margaret O'Mara. Margaret, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Fantastic. Great talking to you. Thanks. So that is it for today's episode. If you found this topic interesting, we can discuss it more on the Here's Something Interesting Facebook page at Something Interesting Podcast. Hope to meet up with you there. I'm Chris Oaks, and if you enjoy the Here's Something Interesting podcast, be sure to subscribe, like our Facebook page, share it with all your friends that might find this stuff interesting as well. Thanks for listening.